Hello. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening, everyone. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. From wherever you're connected uh, across the globe, uh, the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute is welcoming you tonight to it's another valuable and uh, inspiring uh, conversation. And today is more about political science. So we're, today we're talking about the danger zone, the common conflict with China. Um, it is a conventional wisdom that America and China are running a super power marathon that might, that may last a century, but the sharpest face of this competition will be, um, a decade long sprint. And the moment of maximum danger could be just a few years away or with the current political climate sooner than what we can, um, acknowledge. America will still need a long-term strategy for competing with China, but first it needs a near-term strategy for navigating the danger zone ahead. Our conversation tonight will be about this navigation strategies of the danger zone. Uh, our uh, elite speaker is Professor Michael Bickley. He's an associate professor of political science in Tufts University and an author of uh, Unrivaled, Why America Will Remain the World's Sole Power. Um, and uh, Professor Michael is a leading expert on balance of power between the United States and China, and he has authored uh, two books and multiple award-winning articles um, uh, and, 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 um, and multiple publications. Previously, Michael was an international security fellow at Harvard Kennedy School of Government and worked for the U.S. Department of Defense, the Rand Corporation, and the Carnegie uh, endowment of international peace. He's, he continues to advise uh, offices uh, with the United States intelligence uh, uh, community and U.S. Department of Defense. Welcome, Michael. The platform is all yours. Thank you. Thanks, Sola, for that uh, wonderful introduction. And thanks to all of you for tuning in and to NYU Abu Dhabi for sponsoring the talk. Um, what I'll do is I'll, I'll spend the next 20 or 30 minutes just kind of going over some of the issues that I think are most important. I know everyone's probably focused on Russia right now for good reason. Um, and I actually worry that China is also going to be making moves and in particular becoming more repressive and aggressive for some of the same reasons that I think explain Russia's push into Ukraine today. So what I'll do is I'll go over those and then um, try to leave plenty of time um, for, for discussion, for questions at the end, since I know we have a very distinguished audience. So um, because I worked at the U.S. Department of Defense, I um, uh, still have uh, ties to, to using PowerPoint for everything. So I do have a small presentation. So what I'll do is I'll share my, um, my screen and um, that way you can hopefully see some of the, the um, get a better sense of, of the arguments that I'm trying to make. So let me just open this up. Well, I'm having some technical difficulties. So what I think I'll do is I'll just talk instead. And really, there's not you're not going to be missing too much by not looking at the slides. I think, um, you know, the, the point I want to make is that the reason China, I think, is going to be entering a dangerous phase is that its decades long rise is starting to come to an end. And part of this is because of the sustained economic slowdown that China is going through. And at the same time, there is increasing strategic encirclement 
of China. The fact that so many countries are starting belatedly to sort of gang up on China and put it in a much more difficult, less welcoming international environment. And so the the book that is forthcoming on which a lot of this argument draws um, is something I've co-authored with a historian, Hal Brands, who's at SICE at uh, Johns Hopkins. And we really focus on cases of what we call peaking powers. These are countries that have been rising for a decade or more because they have rapidly growing economies and they're making gains on all of their rivals, but then their rise starts to slow. And we, what we found in looking back at history is that these cases of peaking powers actually tend to be the most dangerous kind of great power because they are slowing down, but they haven't started to decline yet. And on the one hand, rapid growth has equipped them to, uh, with the means to sort of shake up the world. But then they have this looming era of stagnation that then gives them the, the, the motive to actually move aggressively. And we've seen this throughout history that when a rising power peaks, it doesn't really mellow out. It, it sort of it starts to crack down at home because the regime gets scared of domestic unrest. And at the same time, these peaking powers expand abroad to try to drum up new sources of revenues for their regime, to uh, try to rally their publics around the ruling regime, to beat back rivals and try to deter them from taking advantage of the, the formerly rising powers, increasing difficulties, and really to try to accomplish long-standing strategic aims before it's too late, before their rise runs out and their power starts to peak or starts to decline. So it's really, it's the rise followed by the specter of a hard fall that really makes for some of the most dangerous periods in international history. And in, in, in the extreme, it can actually be catastrophic. So we show in the book that this helps explain a lot about World War I, for example. So Imperial Germany is terrified um, of uh, the rise in Russian power and its increasing um, collaborations with the French and ultimately launches World War I to try to beat back its rivals and establish hegemony on the continent before it's too late. Imperial Japan in the 1930s, uh, you know, ultimately goes to war and, and launches World War II in East Asia, in part because the Japanese were facing a slowing economy and were worried that the United States was going to choke out its empire in East Asia. And so even if China today avoids those truly extreme catastrophic scenarios, there's also a slew of sort of more moderate cases that are actually still really bad and don't end particularly well and bode ill for what we might expect for China today. So what I'll do um, in this in the short presentation is just make two basic points. The first is that China's rise is starting to end. Um, and the second, why the end of China's rise means probably a, a likely continued surge in internal repression, as well as external foreign policy assertiveness and aggression. Um, and so you're going to have this increasingly hostile climate from both sides. So the first point I want to make is simply just that, you know, we, we've been talking about China as a rising power for so long at this point that I think most people, especially students sort of think of it as like a constant, like it's just a, a standard feature of the international system is the so-called rise of China. And that makes a lot of sense because for any of us that were born after 1978, we've literally only known a world of rapidly rising Chinese power for our entire lives. But I think if you actually look further back in Chinese history, you it becomes clear that the past four decades of peace and prosperity for China are sort of an anomaly. Um, they, they were, and, and in particular, I think they were the result of four fleeting trends that are starting to reverse themselves. And the first is simply that China has enjoyed 
a mostly secure geopolitical environment that was really underpinned by friendly relations with the United States. And that's, that has been very crucial for China because China has the misfortune to be located in a very rough neighborhood where you have uh, 19 countries around China's borders, most of which are either very powerful and scary or they are unstable or some combination of those two things. I mean, if you've ever played the board game Risk, you know that trying to hold Eurasia is damn near impossible. And that's basically what China has to do every single day. And so really for a big chunk of Chinese history and certainly modern Chinese history from the first opium war in 1839 until the end of the Chinese civil war in 1949, imperialist powers come and just prey upon China and rip the country apart. And then even after China unifies under communist rule in 1949, it quickly becomes the chief enemy of a global superpower of the United States, um, largely because of the Korean War, where the two sides actually come to blows. And so then the United States adopts this incredibly aggressive policy to basically try to dismantle the fledgling PRC regime as a great power, doing everything from you know funding uh, the CIA, funding Tibetan guerrillas, just the, what, what Americans called a policy of pressure, basically to isolate and degrade Chinese power. And then... In 1960, China's alliance with the Soviet Union falls apart. And so China becomes the chief enemy of both Cold War superpowers and, in fact, ends up going to war with the Soviet Union in 1969. And so, you know, you can imagine just how difficult life was for the Chinese. They were completely isolated, surrounded, and then not surprisingly, the country was impoverished. And so it's not really until the 1970s uh, that suddenly you have a break in this pattern. China finally has a sort of geopolitical holiday. And this is, of course, underpinned by the fact that Beijing, there's this opening to the United States. And that immediately started to pay dividends. I mean, the United States on multiple occasions, when the Soviets basically took a poll to see who would mind if Moscow attacked China, um, you know, the United States warned, American policymakers warned the Soviets that if they attack China, that would be a grave threat to American interests and the Soviets ultimately back down. And then more, I think even more importantly than the sort of security benefits is the fact that uh, the United States then helped fast track China's integration with the global economy, with Western uh, technology and markets and, and finance. And so really by the mid 1970s, China finally has kind of the best of both worlds. It has a much more safe homeland than it's had in probably centuries prior to that. And it has now abundant access or growing access to Western markets and capital. And the timing of China's opening up was really perfect because that, you know, the 1970s is when most economists date the start of so-called hyper-globalization, this period where a number of different factors came together to cause world trade and investment levels to surge. Um, you know, the, the, the development of the container ship, digitization, which allows multinational companies to source all around the world, all these things come online starting in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s. And so China is able to basically ride this wave of globalization to become what we know of it today as the workshop of the world. And so the fact that world trade surges sixfold between 1970 and 2007 plays a big part. So the first, the first thing that China has had going for it over the last 40 years that I'm going to argue it no longer has going for it was just security and good relations with the United States and its allies and everything else that goes along with it. I mean, there's, there, I could go on and on about all the examples of how that's helped 
um, you know, American venture capital companies bankrolling China's major tech firms and turning them into the titans that they are today. So that has all helped tremendously. Um, the second fleeting factor is that China, for a period starting in the 1970s, starts to evolve towards a better form of government. So the Chinese government just gets better at growing the economy and expanding as a great power. And so, you know, Mao dies in 1976. And China's leaders basically say, okay, we don't want to do more cultural revolutions. We don't want to go back to a period where we're dominated by one cult of personality that leads us astray. And so you see the Chinese government start to make a number of reforms, start to commit to what Deng Xiaoping calls reform and opening. And so uh, the Chinese government starts to reward uh, officials, government officials for good economic performance, not just for sort of blind political loyalty. Uh, rural communities are allowed to set up sort of quasi-private enterprises in preparation to join the World Trade Organization, which China ultimately does in 2001. China in the early 1990s starts to adopt a modern legal and tax collection system. So in other words, China really starts to make major reforms that lead to a, a sort of smarter form of autocracy. Uh, the third factor that has really propelled China's historic rise was a demographic dividend. Um, you know, China had actually the greatest demographic dividend that we know of in modern history, where China had 10 working age adults, 10 workers in its population for every single senior citizen over the age of 65. Most countries don't even get anywhere close to five workers per retiree. So China had more than double the global average, I think for the United States, for example, today, it's something like three or four workers, maybe maximum compared to the number of senior citizens. And so that, that demographic bubble was really a one-time unrepeatable result of China's peculiar population history. So in the 1950s, 1960s, Mao basically wanted to repopulate China and the population had been devastated by you know more than a century of war with major powers, the civil war, massive famine after the Great Leap Forward. And so Mao encourages Chinese families to have lots of children and Chinese families oblige and the population surges 80% in just 30 years and almost doubles in, in a single generation. But then in the late 1970s, China, the Chinese government realizes that they're going to start suffering from an overpopulation problem. And so they pump the brakes and they implement the now infamous one-child policy. And so as a result, in the 1990s and the 2000s, China had kind of the best of both worlds. It had this huge workforce because all those baby boomers were you know, entering the prime of their working lives. And they had relatively few elderly parents to take care of because so many of them had perished in the turmoil of the 40s and 30s and 20s. And they had relatively few children to take care of because of the one child policy. And so no, I mean, literally no population that I know of in human history has been more poised for productivity. And so that partially explains why China is able, again, to become this manufacturing giant um, and integrate um, and, and, and grow and prosper. Um, and then the last sort of fleeting trend was just that China had a lot of resources and had a relatively uh, pristine environment. Um, you know, one sort of a silver lining of under, economic underdevelopment is just that there's a lot of resources that haven't been tapped yet. And so China you know, in the 1970s, 1980s, all the way into the 2000s was largely self-sufficient in pretty much all the major resources, everything from water, food, energy. And that's not just like a, a humanitarian thing. That also helps uh, stimulate the rate of economic growth because capital is cheap. I mean, if you're a company and you want to set up a factory, you have easy access to all the resources 
that you need. And the Chinese government, of course, had pretty lax environmental standards. So like Western multinationals, for example, uh, realized they could set up factories very rapidly there and they don't have to worry about environmental regulations. They have easy access to all of those resources. So that makes growth very cheap. Um, you can set up a factory and plow through the resources. So the combination of those cheap resources plus cheap labor makes China this industrial powerhouse that we know today. So really from the 1970s all the way up, I would say until you know the, the early 2010s, you could argue, China has all of these factors working in its favor. But now all four of those assets are quickly becoming liabilities. And this is why I think we need to start thinking about China as more of a risen power rather than a rising power, that there are just going to be massive headwinds that are going to drag down further the rate of economic growth at the same time that China is increasingly being circled internationally. So first of all, China is just running out of resources. So since the 1970s, China has lost more than half of its rivers. 60% of its groundwater has become so polluted that the Chinese government has said it's unsuitable for human contact, like not even, let alone drinking. If you come into contact with this water, you're in trouble. So obviously you can't even use it for things like farming, agriculture. And at the same time, China, China has lost about 40% of its arable land. So it just has a lot less farmland um, and almost all of its exploitable Oil. And so now it's the largest importer of major commodities, whether it's food, energy, it's suffering severe water scarcity. Beijing has about as much water per capita as Saudi Arabia. Um, and it's increasingly having to worry about food shortages. Um, and just to give you a sense, recently the government passed new directives that have banned large banquets. They've also banned binge eating and eating contests as a way to kind of try to encourage the population to start conserving resources that are getting increasingly scarce. And again, this is not just a humanitarian thing. It also affects the rate of economic growth. So growth is now three times more expensive. Each unit of GDP growth is requires three times more spending today than it did even just in the 2000s. And part of this is just that resources are more scarce. And so they're a lot more expensive. Um, second is that China is just starting to run out of people as well, thanks to the one child policy. So between now and the early 2030s, China is going to lose roughly 70 million working age adults. And at the same time, it's going to gain about 120 million senior citizens. And to put that in perspective, that is a France-sized population of consumers, taxpayers, workers just gone. And at the same time, China's adding a Japan-sized population of elderly pensioners that's going to have to take care of. And this is, this is happening. You know, China's demographic problem is not just a long-term problem. This is happening within the next 10 to 15 years. By the early 2030s, this demographic crunch is going to be kicking into high gear. And then from, from 2035 to 2050, things just get even worse. I mean, China basically falls off a demographic cliff. China's going to lose an additional 105 million working age adults. It's going to gain close to 70 million more senior citizens. Um, and you know, the estimates that are coming in right now suggest that think age-related spending, so this is spending on everything from medical care, social security, et cetera, is going to need to triple as a share of China's economy between now and 2050. So from 10% of GDP to 30% of GDP just in the next 30 years, just to keep senior citizens from dying en masse in abject poverty. So, I mean, this is going to be a massive fiscal drain on China at the same time that it's, of course, going to sap the productivity of the workforce just because you have a lot fewer workers and a lot more social services that you have to provide. Um, the third 
headwinds that China is now facing is uh, governance. You know, I think dealing with all of these problems would be hard enough, but it's going to be especially difficult because I think China, by all accounts, has been, is, you know, is now ruled by a dictator for life. And Xi Jinping, you know, that wouldn't be so bad if Xi Jinping was sort of a savvy economic reformer, but he has shown time and again that he will sacrifice economic efficiency if it boosts his political power and his ability to centralize power at home. So, I, I mean, there's many, many examples of this, but I'll just highlight a few. Like, for example, private firms generate most of China's actual wealth, but under Xi, uh, state, inefficient state-owned enterprises are receiving roughly 80% of the government loans and subsidies. And so private firms are starved of capital while these bloated zombie firms in the state sector are still being propped up. Uh, Xi's anti-corruption campaign has scared a lot of lower level CCP officials, especially at the local level, from experimenting with different economic ideas. And that, that experimentation was actually really key to China's rise because you had different localities trying different economic programs. And that led to a very vibrant um, set of um, you know, experimentations and markets. Um, but now they're being afraid to because they don't want to get caught up in this sort of dragnet of anti-corruption um, investigations. And then at the same time, as you're probably well aware, there's been a series of really tight regulations that the CCP has handed down just in the last few years alone. And all of these look politically motivated to varying extents. Um, and you know, some of these, like for example, just the restrictions on tech companies have erased more than a trillion dollars in market capitalization from them, you know, and you know, high-profile cases like Alibaba basically being dismantled um, and, and hived off. Um, you know, that that kind of squelching of entrepreneurship and in the most dynamic sectors doesn't really bode well for long-term economic growth. Uh, then the last point um, is simply that the world, that that welcoming geopolitical environment that China has enjoyed for 40 years, I think is rapidly deteriorating. So the world is starting to turn to varying degrees against China. And this is, of course, led by the United States, which, in my opinion, has basically implemented sort of a neo-containment policy against China. It's pursuing basically economic warfare. So we're talking about the most aggressive use of American tariffs since World War II, the tightest investment restrictions on another country since, uh, since the end of the Cold War, um, as well as um, basically you know, trying to incentivize firms to cut China out of their supply chains. And increasingly, other countries are, to varying degrees, implementing their own set of barriers against China. So China, according to data sets that are widely available, now faces thousands new trade and investment barriers today that it didn't face even just a few years ago. And so you see this less welcoming international economic environment. So it's harder for China to just go abroad, get technology, get capital, sell into foreign markets. It's just becoming a lot more expensive for it to do so. Um, and you know, all of these headwinds are already starting to take their toll. I mean, one, one graph I wish I could show you is just the slowdown in China's growth rate just over the last 10 years alone. Those growth rates have dropped by more than half on the eve of COVID. And then, of course, the COVID pandemic has caused Chinese growth to go down by even more. Um, but, you know, even, I think the, the bigger problem for China is not so much the rate of economic growth. I mean, if China could grow at three to 4% a year, that would still be very healthy and sustainable and great. I mean, in the United States, you know, we would kill for just steady four to 5% growth a year. But I think the more problematic issue for China is the quality of its economic growth is starting to deteriorate. So a lot of the growth, especially in recent years, has really resulted from the government just sort of force-feeding capital through the system. So not from increases in productivity, you know, making things 
cheaper and better, but rather just from pumping a lot of stimulus spending through the Chinese economy. And if you actually subtract that out, I mean, growth is almost non-existent. So productivity, total factor productivity, what economists call it, which is the key ingredient for actual wealth creation, that has declined more than 10%. Just over the last 10 years. So China is actually getting less and less efficient. It's, I mean, it's, it's making less and less, um, and having to spend more and more to do so. And, you know, a lot of my research compares the rise and fall of great powers over many centuries. And I really haven't found a productivity collapse from a great power like this since the Soviet Union in the 1980s. Now, obviously the Soviet Union was facing a lot of other problems that maybe China is not facing today, like, imperial overstretch with its military all over the globe and a big oil crisis at the time in the 1980s. But I think it's it's striking the comparison of productivity numbers in China today to the Soviet Union, which is not an example, obviously, you want to emulate. And if you've spent any time traveling around China, you've probably at some point encountered some of the evidence of this sort of very expensive, wasteful growth. So there's obviously been lots of uh, studies that have documented all the so-called ghost cities in China, the fact that roughly a quarter of urban apartments are unoccupied, uh, the fact that excess capacity in major industries is 30 to 40% and rising over time. So that's, you know, uh, uh, factories sitting idle or goods sort of piling up in warehouses without markets to sell them into. Um, And so... The result of all of this waste, of course, has been a huge surge in debt in the Chinese economy. So China's total debt, so not just government debt, but you know, um, in uh, among households, among businesses, et cetera, that has ballooned more than eightfold in absolute terms. And and the the sums are are truly staggering. So just over the last ten years, China has taken out roughly thirty trillion dollars in new credit. That's equivalent to a third of the entire global economy, um, basically just putting it on the credit card. So that's, you know, certainly not a, a great precedent. And any country that has accumulated debt or lost productivity at anything close to China's current clip and suffered sort of an aging crisis has gone on to have at least one lost decade of near zero economic growth. Maybe China will buck that historical trend, but at least history suggests that's very unlikely. And so this economic slowdown would be bad enough, but it's occurring at the same time that China is confronting a more hostile strategic environment. So negative views of China around the world have surged to levels that we haven't seen since the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre. Um, the United States you know, is sort of leading the charge. It has this big naval and missile expansion planned. Um, and as I mentioned, all those economic restrictions on China and other nations are to varying degrees following suit. So, you know, the EU has labeled China a systemic rival and froze its investment treaty with China. And, and, and some of e- the EU's major powers like Germany and Britain and France are sending sort of token warships into the South China Sea. In Asia, I mean, China confronts increasingly hostile governments really at kind of every corner of the compass from Japan, um, which is becoming, it looks like it's trying to become more of a normal country and is tightening its alliance with the United States. Australia, obviously with something like AUKUS, uh, Vietnam, India with the rumble in the Himalayas that we saw just over a year ago. I mean, and even in even countries that used to lean or be more uh, favorable to China, like South Korea, for example, are starting to turn on China as well. So in South Korea today, the most recent opinion polls show that China is actually more disliked than Japan is, which is 
kind of an amazing finding just given the horrible history between Japan and South Korea and the amount of anti-Japanese sentiment. But because China has become so much more repressive and aggressive in recent years, countries are starting to turn. And then, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic doesn't help things. So that's that's these are all the reasons why I think we need to start looking at what happens if China's power peaks, because that seems to be the writing on the wall, at least as far as I see it. And so that begs the question, how will China react to these growing headwinds to its rise? What does this mean for Chinese foreign policy as well as domestic policy? So this leads to the second and final issue that I want to bring up today. Um, and namely just that you know China, of course, has these formidable geopolitical capabilities, but at the same time, I think there's good reason for Chinese leaders to worry that their best days of sort of rapidly accumulating power are coming to an end. And from an American perspective, on the one hand, this might be good news because it means China would be a less competitive long-term rival to the United States. But I think in the short term, it actually could be even more threatening. It could be a more explosive near-term threat because the CCP is going to be more desperate either for additional sources of wealth or additional sources of legitimacy if it can no longer promise its people steadily rising bank accounts and growing wealth and international power and prestige. And it's going to be primed to overreact to perceived slights and setbacks. And I think that we already see this, frankly, in China's transition from so-called friendship diplomacy to wolf warrior diplomacy, where you know basically any slight, no matter how small from a foreigner, is now met by Chinese diplomats with really like North Korea style condemnation um, and aggression. Um, and history shows that this, this is actually the norm in international history, that when rising power, powers slow down, they don't mellow out, they crack down on dissent, and then they expand abroad to find new sources of wealth and to deter their foreign rivals from exploiting their increasingly vulnerable position. And in my academic research, I've looked at every case where this has happened to a great power over the last couple hundred years, and none of them quietly accepted the new normal of slowing economic growth or rising strategic encirclement. All of them tried to varying extents to batter their way through these hard times, and a few of them even started major wars. And it's not just the cases that you in instantly come to mind. I mean, one example is the United States. So we typically don't think of the United States as having been a peaking power, but in the late 19th century, American growth rates slowed dramatically. So basically after the U.S. Civil War in the 1860s, there's a couple of decades of very rapidly uh, growing, e of rapid economic growth. But then in the 1880s and 1890s, there's a series of major depressions in the United States and people started to freak out because they, you know, they'd expanded across the American continent and they worried that there was just no more uh, greenfield investment opportunities, shall we say, in the U.S., that the rate of growth was inevitably going to decline unless they started to expand abroad. And so on the one hand, the American government reacted to this economic depression by cracking down on labor. So if you've studied American history, uh, you'll know that the 1890s is a period of horrific labor unrest where the government is putting out massive strikes violently by workers who are laid off or have their wages cut because of the tough economic times. So the U.S. government becomes more repressive at the same time that this is the great age, of course, of American expansion, where the U.S. floods, pumps investment and trade abroad, especially into East Asia and into Latin America, and then annexes territory in those regions and then builds this giant navy in order to protect its far-flung assets. And so I think these things go sort of hand in hand. Um, another example happened around the same time. So Imperial Russia has its own economic slowdown 
in the 1890s and uh, reacts by, first of all, the czar puts 70% of the Russian empire under martial law. And then Russia really expands aggressively into the Far East, into Siberia and elsewhere. And it basically keeps expanding there to lock down resources until they come into conflict with the Japanese who end up going to war and booting the Russians out in the uh, 1904-1905 Russo-Japanese War. Um, there's other, of course, extreme examples. So, you know, in the 1930s, Germany and Japan, um, you know, because of the Great Depression in part, have these economic slowdowns. Their rise starts to stall and they turn to horrible, um, you know, militism and, and, and fascism. We know how that turns out. But there's other sort of less well-known examples. Like most people don't think of uh, post-war France as an expansionist power. But in the 1970s, when its, it's post-war boom finally fizzles out, France ends up trying to basically reconstitute its neo-colonial presence in parts of Africa um, and ends up sending 14,000 troops to Africa, engaging in more than a dozen military interventions there to try to lock down um, its um, economic resources there. And then I think, you know, what's apropos of today, given where what Russia is doing to Ukraine, I think it's important to have the backstory to how we got here. So, um, and I'll take you all the way back to the 2000s where, you know, uh, the Russian economy is growing rapidly, largely because of the rise of oil and gas prices and Putin's popularity surges in tandem with that rise in economic growth. But then after the 2008 financial crisis and the wake of that, this drop in global demand and a bunch of other factors in oil and gas markets that, you know, the price of oil goes down and basically takes the Russian economy and Putin's popularity down with it. And so then Russian policymakers come up with this idea of the what now becomes the Eurasian Economic Union, where they say, okay, we need to develop new markets. We basically want to create our own version of NAFTA, sort of a more coercive version of NAFTA to try to bring in especially former Soviet states and use them as sources of labor, as markets to sell into, and to basically increase our economic footprint as a way to stabilize the economy. And so the Russian government starts putting more pressure on especially Ukraine, because it's a major, it would be the major piece of that economic empire. Ukrainians, of course, get other ideas. They start leaning towards the EU and that sets up this eventual showdown. Um, and, you know, the crisis in 2014. And that, I think, of course, then plays a role in leading up to where we are um, today. So these and, and many other examples that I've covered in my research and that Hal Brands and I highlight in, in our forthcoming book show that rising powers can become prickly and aggressive when their economy is running out of steam and they start to face increasing pushback from foreigners that repression and expansion usually follow. And the reason our book is called Danger Zone is because we worry that China checks a lot of the historical boxes for a pretty bad Outcome. So you have the slowing economic growth, you have the uh, rising strategic encirclement, you have a brutal authoritarian regime, which our research shows is the most likely to have a negative reaction to these kind of pressures. And it's also important to remember that China is not just any great power, it is a revanchist great power. They, I mean, in the, in the CCP's narrative, there are lost Chinese territories that were unjustifiably wrenched away from China during the century of humiliation. And part of the CCP's legitimacy is saying, we will never let that happen again. And we're going to eventually right historical wrongs. We're going to return China to its rightful place as the dominant power in Asia and maybe one of the strongest powers in the world. And that means taking back these lost territories. So that, of course, means bringing Hong Kong back into the fold. That's basically been done. Uh, Taiwan, of course, is another major site. You can't let this renegade rival government exist and have this defense relationship with the United States. Uh, the East and South China Seas, you know, 80% of that should be basically under Chinese control and the Chinese get to say who gets in and who gets out. I mean, these are all 
claims that are outlined in Chinese strategic documents um, and should be very worrying because it means that China has these very ambitious objectives at the same time that it's confronting a closing window of opportunity to really try to lock them down. Um, so, you know, I think the the story I'm sort of telling is probably is is different from the one that I think most people are used to hearing. I mean, I think most people, everyone has recognized that China is becoming more assertive internationally. But I think the dominant theme remains this idea that China is throwing its weight around more because it's more confident that it feels like, you know, the east wind is rising and the west wind is declining, et cetera, and that it's it's inevitable that it's going to take over the world. That actually is not usually what happens internationally. Usually when a country is rising, that country realizes that the system is working very much in its favor. And so it doesn't want to rock the boat and screw things up with some lunge for primacy that's premature. And so it usually just quietly overtakes its rivals. But I think I, I really think the more scary and likely possibility is that China's leaders are moving fast to translate their latent power into actual hard power assets on the ground because they realize that they have this closing window of opportunity, everything from the demographic crunch, the economic slowdown, the strategic encirclement. And so this really means that China is going to become increasingly difficult to deal with. I think a number of factors are especially troubling. Obviously, the, the conflict in the Taiwan Strait, you know, China has been sustaining the most provocative show of force there in, in a generation, really since the 1995 1996 Taiwan Straits crisis, where you have essentially Chinese uh, armadas, you know, prowling the strait on a, almost a daily basis um, um, and showing force there. And you know, I think it's no surprise that at least within the Pentagon, there's a lot of fear that um, a Chinese assault of some kind may be imminent on on Taiwan. And certainly, Russia's actions in Ukraine show that old-fashioned conquest is very much alive and well. That we can't just assume that it won't happen. Um, another area that I really worry about China moving is in sort of the ideological realm. I, you know, I don't see China as this evangelical power that wants to create sort of mini Chinas around the world. But I do think that China wants there to be more authoritarian governments around the world, simply because other autocrats won't, won't criticize or will be less likely to criticize China for its own autocratic practices at home. And also, if China can make democracy look dysfunctional and chaotic, that's also great for the CCP because then China's own people will be less likely to want to emulate those chaotic democratic systems and will be much more in favor of the, of really the vision that Xi Jinping has put forward, which is this idea of a well-ordered, harmonious society. And of course, there's a long lineage in Chinese political thought that celebrates that type of political system. And what I think we're seeing today is that China, because it's pioneered within its own borders, this new form of digital surveillance, you know, where you can use, in China's case, hundreds of millions of surveillance cameras, tie that to facial and speech recognition technologies, and then merge that with the traditional security forces so that you can basically keep tabs on the entire population. And at the same time, then when you identify troublemakers, you can send in the internal security forces to go give a knock on the door. I mean, this is a very powerful system. It makes autocracy more efficient and effective than I think ever before. And it also does, it basically frees autocrats from their traditional uh, trade-off between economic growth on the one hand and more repression on the other hand, because a lot of these same technologies that enable China's surveillance state also do things like make the trains run on time. You know, you can use AI to sort through a bunch of pictures of potential dissidents at the same time you can use it to make infrastructure work more efficiently. And so needless to say, demand for China's system internationally 
is overwhelming and China is already selling and operating aspects of this system in more than 80 countries. So I really worry that this has the potential to really um, have, throw a big blow to the expansion of democracy internationally and to actually allow uh, autocracy or forms of autocracy to spread more rapidly. And then the third area I worry about in the short term is um, China, you know, trying to establish this sort of economic empire, you know, with this massive surge of sovereign lending um, and through projects like the Belt and Road. Uh, um, and then combined with this new focus on um, making sure to promoting Chinese tech champions so that countries get dependent on Chinese technology and the whole ecosystem um, of, of systems that go along with that. I, I think that's going to push us to a world that's much more splintered technologically, um, where, you know, if you travel to China's sort of emerging techno block um, and you come from the West, you know, your, your cell phone probably won't work. You're, you're not going to have access to the same internet sites. Um, and in addition, you know, those countries will have their telecommunications networks wired by China. So there's there's a number of, of sort of short-term threats that I think China poses, at least from an American perspective. And I think the, the overarching point that I'll end with is simply that, you know, we tend to think of this competition with China as this decades-long marathon that at least in the United States, we assume we have all this time to kind of get our own house in order to do some nation building at home, to invest in long-term research and development, um, and then gear up for a slow, steady struggle against China. But I think China's recent behavior and this historical precedent that I found in my research suggests that actually the sharpest phase of this competition could be more like a decade-long sprint in the 2020s, because this is really the prime time for China to strike out on all of these different avenues and China's current behavior suggests it's already following that historical path. So um, on that happy note, um, I'll open it up for questions and discussions, but thanks again for tuning in. I really look forward to um, chatting with you. Thank you so much, Michael. Very insightful indeed. And our audience can't wait to just have uh, their own interaction with you. And I hope uh, you are ready for the questions. We are going to take the Q&A. I will introduce the audience and um, I'll take them as they are coming. So we have a question at the moment from Habibol. Kondaker, uh, and he said, uh, China is denied of an agency, uh, is denied of any agency for its own development and recent history, and its economic growth is seen as gift from the U.S. This is an interesting perspective. Uh, am I reading you wrongly here? Is this the message that you want to send I'm, across? Uh, uh, I'm a bit confused by the, the question because, I mean, one of the points I pointed out was that China's government reforms, especially starting after, after the death of Mao and in the 1970s, and of course, and institute a number of policies, which then required the vigorous uh, efforts and actions of the Chinese people themselves. Obviously, if the Chinese economy is growing, then that's done by Chinese citizens themselves. So I'm sorry if I gave the implication that somehow the United States gifted a bunch of wealth to China, that's certainly not the case. But I think you also have to, to look at the, the international environment that China has to deal with and how the United States plays a major role in shaping that international environment, at least during the Cold War years, where the United States has all of these allies and they can either do what they did in the 1950s and 1960s, which is basically try to strangle the Chinese regime with embargoes and close it off and military pressure, or they can start doing what they did in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, 2000s, and start to engage China, cooperate with it, um, engage in trade and investment. And so 
I, I, the point I wanted to make was simply that the United States played a big role in changing the environment that China, the opportunities that China had. But obviously, you know, Chinese economic growth is propelled from the labor of the Chinese people, from decisions that were made in the Chinese government. Um, I mean, that's just not a debatable point. Perfect. So we have a bit of uh, questions. I would merge them together from Kuki Ajiri and as well from Rue. And Rue is asking, hasn't China recently greatly increased their homegrown intellectual property and homegrown technology advances in space programs, electrical transportation and energy? And, uh, and aren't these advances allowing China to become more self-reliant and increasing their global economic influence? Hence, their TFP, as you have just mentioned. Um, we have another comment as well from Cookie on the changes here, saying that they also adapted a three-child policy or multiple children policy. How would this impact their demographic and their uh, essentially their TFP factors eventually? Um, um, and how would this improve their economic productivity? How might China zero COVID policy post its uh, prowess relative to the U.S.? Um, okay. of course, there is a note here in the chat saying uh, that the TFP factors of China at the moment is, is, is way higher than the U.S. Okay. So I, I don't, I'll address that last point just because I don't think that's true. I mean, if you look at the data from the conference board, which is the one that economists use most, uh, you see a pretty massive slide in, in Chinese productivity. I will say on the, on the first question, it's certainly true that China has made major gains in economic self-sufficiency. It's the leading producer of many vital products, advanced technologies, um, you know, everything from medical supplies, rare earths to various, you know, speech and facial recognition technology. I think China is a world leader in terms of innovation in those areas. In um, it's, it's making this big push in artificial intelligence. And I think it certainly has a number of advantages over a country like the United States because it has this huge population of internet users. So it has a lot more data that it can use. And it's also, you know, the a, a massive manufacturer and leads the world in manufacturing of many different items, everything from solar panels, various um, home appliances, et cetera. So there's no doubt that China has many sites of economic excellence. But I think the, the bottom line is it also has a lot of areas of, of economic uh, inefficiency still in its, its system. And the problem is that those are large and they're also being propped up by the state with a number of subsidies. And so that is that partially explains this slide in productivity and the massive increase in Chinese debt. I think the construction sector, for example, is massively bloated. The shipbuilding sector is, is over bloated. I mean, anything that really kind of paved a lot of China's infrastructure, the problem is so much infrastructure has been built the market is largely saturated, and as a result, you have wasting assets that are piling up. So, none of the none of what I'm saying suggests that China has not made major gains in lots of different technologies and lots of products. But the problem is, there's also a lot of areas of extreme inefficiency in the Chinese economy that are dragging it back down and leading to an aggregate growth slowdown. Which I think, I mean, I don't unless you're telling me that China's growth is is increasing, is rapidly growing in, in terms of its growth rate. I just you, you have to look at the aggregate sort of numbers. Um, in terms of the zero COVID policy, I mean, that obviously is going to take a short-term hit on the Chinese economy, but I don't think that's necessarily problematic in the long term. My sense is also that Xi Jinping is keeping that in place for now, in part because he has this big party Congress coming up in October where he's going to exceed 
for the first time, his unofficial sort of term limits. You know, there had been this kind of norm established that Chinese leaders step down after 10 years or so. And no one expects Xi Jinping to step down, but I think it's, I think he understands that it's, it's, it's significant that he will be actually staying on beyond that um, after October. And so is paving the way to make sure there, there aren't sites of opposition. And so locking down um, through a zero COVID policy is, is helpful for that. And at the same time, you know, there's been a lot of reports that suggest the Chinese vaccine has not been terribly um, effective. And so something, you know, that means the government has to resort towards more draconian measures on the behavior of Chinese citizens um, instead. Um, there, was, there was one other question there that I'm sorry that um, I didn't catch. So maybe you can remind me what it was. I think you answered all of them. So the zero policy, the um, uh, the TFP question. And oh, the uh, the three child policy uh, question. Yeah, that, that's a very good question because China a few years ago first relaxed it to a two child policy. And now there's a three child policy. I think the, the, the fundamental problem, I mean, that's that's smart for the Chinese government to do. But the fundamental problem is it's not going to make any difference in the short term, even if Chinese families suddenly start to have families. It takes 18 years or, or even more than that to grow a, a fully fledged, capable adult uh, worker. But even but what we're seeing from Chinese birth rates is they're actually plummeting. I mean, they've dropped to their lowest levels since I think 1961, which is right after the Great Leap Forward, what, you know, the largest famine in history. And a lot of that is just that things have gotten very expensive for average Chinese in, in cities. Chinese women also are increasingly choosing to prioritize their careers rather than um, you know lock themselves down in, in a marriage and start having children. And, and simply the fact that things like housing have gotten so expensive mean that Chinese families just feel they can't afford to have as many children as maybe they otherwise would have. So there's a whole bunch of different pressures that aren't necessarily unique to China, but also just mean that changing the policy and allowing people to have more children is not going to, I don't think it's going to lead to a big surge in the birth rate. Um, and we're already seeing that. And even if it did, it wouldn't really kick in until 18 years. And by then it's just not going to make up for the avalanche of population decline that China has already set itself up for. Perfect. So the next question from Avishakar, uh, Avishkar, he's asking how will China authoritarian regime affect its rise as a superpower, given that it's aggressive domestic policy to limit uh, political freedom might somehow interfere with the economic development and may have to choose between somewhere, uh, between one of them in the future. Um, if it opens as more democratic country, what would be the implications then? That, that's a fantastic question. And I think we don't really know for sure. I mean, there's theories that sort of compare what leads to longer, more sustainable economic growth, a more autocratic system or a more democratic system. And the sort of the standard answer is that autocracies are very good at rapid growth at the lower levels of economic development because they can just, you know, they can mobilize the population and, and um, you know, take peasants off of farmland and put them in factories and have them work and increase productivity. They can um, subsidize key strategic industries um, and pump them up with subsidies so that the country becomes a dominant um, player in those industries. And China, I think, is you know kind of the ringing success story of all of that, just given its rapid economic growth over the last 40 years. But what, what the theories anyway say is that, but then when you get to this point where you need to transition from just labor-intensive manufacturing and industrial output to a more ideas-driven economy, more services-driven economy, their autocracies may have a disadvantage because when people, when everyday citizens know that uh, are, are looking to the state 
for economic direction when they know that um, if they start a business, it might just be expropriated by the state and, and, and bulldozed at any given point. Um, when they know that their intellectual property, if they can come up with some new invention, might be taken away from them um, and, and given back to the state or redistributed. That, that just dulls the incentives for things like entrepreneurship and innovation. Now, I think the new thing that we don't really know about is whether the nature of technology now is just different than it was in past eras in ways that may actually give an autocracy like China a number of advantages. So, you know, if, if it turns out that artificial intelligence driven by big data is going to revolutionize the economy, the global economy, then China may have a huge advantage because the Chinese government doesn't have to worry as much about the privacy of its citizens. It can take all their data and it just has a lot more data to work with and can cram it through algorithms that can maybe lead to a lot more efficient, you know, efficient infrastructure, more innovations, et cetera. So I think we, we still don't really know, but I, there's the standard theories say autocracies do very well. They usually have this big surge of rapid development in the early years, but then they struggle to make the transition. And that's why so few countries have gone from very poor up into the highest, the richest areas, unless they, you know, they have a bonanza, like they discover oil or something on their, on their territory. Outside of that, it's very rare for large economies, you know, not small economies like Singapore or something like that to really make this leap. And the ones that have tend to be uh, democratic, you know, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan. These are all countries that eventually transitioned to democracy. And a lot of people think those things are, are related, that you need a more open system to have a more ideas-driven economy. But this is the great, I, I think that is one of the most important questions that we have um, today for the future of world politics. Thank you, Michael. So we have another question from Reem Reno, and I would like to combine her question with Owen Hatzel. So Reem is asking you, what is your prediction of their extraterritorial expansion uh, at the moment? Because we've seen that the uh, Belt Road already has been established for China, where there is an oversight and control for international ports um, all over the world, especially in Africa. Um, would you comment uh, how this expansion contributed to China, to China, for example, currency um, cur uh, position and currency reserve of the world in the world, and what would be the credit comparison um, um, for the Chinese debts and the U.S. debt uh, at the moment? Um, and we have as well a question from Owen saying because it's about expansion and the Chinese expansion. So Owen is asking, how does uh, the current Ukrainian crisis, Russian crisis play into this growing fear? Will it increase China's uh, attempts uh, to take over, for example, Taiwan, or does the stiff resistance on display there um, uh, provide a global uh, potential for success for these kind of conflicts? Yeah, I think there's there's two issues here and they kind of go in different ways. So the economic expansion that China has had, um, obviously it's hit and miss. It depends on which area you're talking about. But there's, of course, been major success that China has had everything from, you know, major port deals, infrastructure through the Belt and Road. And China has managed to make um, many, you know, it's it's the largest trading partner of, of many countries, especially in the developing world, because China also has advantages in the sense that its technology that it's promoting tends to be cheaper, it's more affordable. And so it is more appealing, I think, to the alternatives that have been pioneered, you know, mostly say in Europe or in Japan or, or the United States. And so you see, especially in Latin America, in parts of Africa, that China has made major inroads and now has this huge economic presence. And that can actually help China 
not just from a diplomatic sort of winning hearts and minds perspective, but also its its own economic development because it uh, you know drums up business for for Chinese firms. Um, it creates uh, larger markets that China can potentially sell to. It actually creates almost sort of captive markets if you can get countries sort of hooked on your technology. There's sort of startup costs. You know, once if you let China set up your 5G network, then you're sort of integrated into China's ecosystem of technologies. And so you just, you're going to have to buy them, you know, for the long haul. So I think there's a number of benefits there that the risk though, um, is that China has lent out, you know, more than a trillion dollars to more than 150 countries. And a lot of these countries are um, below investment grade. Uh, you know, they, there's, it's going to be very difficult for some of these countries to pay back the debts that China has doled out. There's actually a very interesting study by researchers at Harvard that showed that China has basically created a second version of the 1980s debt crisis when more than 27 developing countries, you know, they got loaded up on debt by Western, mostly Western banks and ended up defaulting. And they ended up having this horrible, uh, you know, the debt crisis and then uh, uh, lost decades of growth. And that was very bad for those Western banks too, because they had to write off those loans. So China's put itself in a position uh, 10 years down the line when a lot of those loans are going to come due from either having to write off loans that aren't paid back, or they're going to have to seize collateral in partner nations or somehow renegotiate those, that's going to put China in, in that may undercut some of the soft power benefits anyway, that China has received so far with um, its economic expansion. Now on the military side, I'm, I'm, I'm very worried obviously about Taiwan. I really think, I mean, you know, any, if you've spent any time studying China or, or living in China, you know, that it's, it's a very, it's a vital national interest from China's perspective for a number of reasons, military, uh, in terms of legitimacy of the CCP, um, economics. And at the same time, the United States, I think, is signaling, and frankly, other countries, other U.S. allies are all starting to say, we're probably going to help defend Taiwan. So not only is the U.S. thinking about getting rid of any kind of strategic ambiguity over Taiwan, but you had Japan recently say that a Chinese assault on Taiwan would be um, viewed as a, as a threat to Japan itself. The Australians have said they can't imagine not getting involved. So I just worry that there's this showdown brewing over Taiwan. And it really stems from the fact that public opinion in Taiwan is not going in the direction that China wants, that more and more Taiwanese view themselves as Taiwanese and not Chinese. And so this idea that there's going to be peaceful reunification in the future looks further and further out of reach. And so I think the CCP is saying, well, I mean, if they're not going to come back peacefully, is it time to start flexing the military muscle, the $3 trillion in military muscle that we built up over the last three decades to try to bring Taiwan back into the fold? I really worry um, overwhelmingly about that. You know, there, I know there's other areas, obviously, in the South China Sea where China is throwing its you know, maritime militia around, but I think the the prospect for like a major war involving Chinese conquest um, is is over Taiwan, and it looks much more likely today than it did five um, or ten years ago. Great insight. So we have another question from Steve uh, Yunguan Chai, and he's asking: One decade ago, you argued that China was rising, but not catching up with the United States in China centuries. In China century, you argue that China is a rising power and will not be rising because China no longer has uh, the four factor, including the hyper-globalization reform and opening up demographic dividends um, and ma many resources um, as such. However, economy in China has never been static in the last 50 years. The, that entirely depends on these four factors. Now China switches 
to high-end manufacturing in the global value chain and, remove it, and removes regulations on foreign banks to operate in China to make the financial market more liberal, liberal uh, alibi uh, political setbacks and hence more attractive. How would you comment on recent trans transformations of Chinese uh, or China political economy? Uh, why won't tra the transformation surpass the four factors that you have described? I mean, it, it certainly could. So certainly, I think, you know, because the Chinese officials are very well aware of these, these headwinds, and so they're looking for new ways to continue economic growth. One, as you mentioned, is by opening up to foreign portfolio investment. And so you've seen, you know, Wall Street is, is just piling in to China. Um, and so there's a lot more capital being raised in China. And also, you know, there's probably some expertise that's transferred that'll help China down the road, you know, just doing financial transactions within its own economy. And China, the Chinese government is directing those funds towards strategic industries that Chinese officials have outlined. So the major technologies and key what, what Chinese officials have called choke points. These are goods that other countries can't live without. So, you know, as I mentioned, medical supplies, rare earths, and then these, these top level technologies. So maybe, you know, if China can somehow then gain a foothold and become the dominant producer, you know, if China dominates AI, then maybe that can throw off some of these headwinds that I've talked about before, certainly the CCP is, is banking on it. This idea of dual circulation that China's become more um, dependent on its own, you know, having Chinese companies buy from other companies, having Chinese, um, you're relying more on the domestic market and only using foreigners to the extent that you, you really need them, but not just opening up the Chinese economy so that Western multinationals can tap China's cheap labor and then take most of the profits back to their country. So that's certainly one area where China is trying to offset these headwinds. But on the other hand, I mean, it's just, it's going to be very difficult because, I mean, you take any one of those things alone, like say the demographic problem. I mean, I just, I don't know how you recover from losing that many workers that, that quickly. Um, you know, maybe China can turn to automation rapidly to try to offset that. And again, the Chinese regime is investing, you know, China is, is probably the top investor in, in automation has been automating more rapidly, but is that really going to offset all of those jobs at the same time? What population growth is occurring is occurring in rural areas where a lot of children still don't receive anything beyond a sort of middle school education. And so you have this entire generation. Um, there's a researcher at Stanford whose name I'm blanking on, but he's done a number of really important studies showing that this, there's this huge hundreds of millions of, of Chinese children that are going to be entering the workforce are, have very, very low levels of education. They have, on average, lower IQs because of malnutrition. And that, that, wouldn't, that wasn't a problem 30 years ago when they could easily find employment in big manufacturing hubs. But if those dry up and they have to now find jobs in more service industries that require a higher level set of skills, you're just going to have this big population of floating, mostly rural workers without gainful employment. Um, that by itself is going to be a major problem. So, I mean, just any one of these issues, these headwinds, I think, are just so big that it's going to be very hard for the Chinese government to completely overcome them, but certainly something like automation, um, taking foreign money and trying to pump it into strategic industries, that is, that's a smart way to try to go about it. Time will tell whether it can be offset. So we have a very interesting question from Hamad, and he's asking, and I will join it with other questions as well from the audience. He's saying China appears to be challenging the U.S. hegemony uh, from within the order of Washington, uh, of, 
within the order Washington dominates. Is this the beginning of a new Cold War of sorts? The world clearly is being divided into camps, as we have seen it today, and we are, we've seen it a long time ago. What are the consequences of dividing the world further into camps at a time when we need more unity to deal with the current, uh, you know, not only the pandemic, but the current economic, global economic issues? And we have also a question from Alfonso Yuji Cortez, and he's asking, will we see uh, a Russian-style invasion for Taiwan from China, for example, supporting their dominant uh, positioning uh, in China? And Albert Goldson from the Cerulean Council in NYU's uh, city think tank is asking, is the China leadership even more paranoid about avoiding collapse uh, a collapse similar to the Soviet Union? I think these questions are all within the same sphere. Sorry, sorry. What was the first question again? The first question was about the fact that what are the consequences of dividing the world into camps and drawing this kind of Cold War tactics all around? Okay, that, that's a, that's, these are all really great questions. I think absolutely on the first question. So, um, you know, I think the current world or the, li- the so-called liberal international order, I, I think is very important to recognize that is, is kind of like a, a holdover from the Cold War. So the, you know, a lot of the institutions, you know, everything from uh, what becomes the WTO, NATO, obviously, even the EU, you know, gets its start in the Cold War. These were built at a time when the United States and its allies faced this communist superpower in the Soviet Union. So the way they combated that superpower is by building a capitalist order, something that prioritized free markets, pushed private enterprise as far as their power could go. And that order is ill-equipped to take on a country like China, which, even though it's technically communist, has basically harnessed the capitalist system to increase its own power. So, you know, keeping non-tariff barriers on foreign goods coming in while at the same time accessing Western markets, um, getting access to Western intellectual property while trying to protect China's own. You know, there's all these ways that China has sort of asymmetrically um, 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 used the system. And so it's it's not really well equipped. Something like the WTO, for example, has shown itself to be entirely toothless in terms of getting China to, um, to you know, uh, protect foreign intellectual property or grant full market access. And so what I think you're seeing now is the United States and some of its allies getting together and basically trying to create a new order that's now aimed at China, which they view as their main adversary. So if you've been watching what the G7 has been doing recently, they've come up with this slew of new trade and investment deals that even though they don't necessarily mention China by name, I think are largely aimed at China. So something like uh, the steel and aluminum deal that the US and EU have, where it basically says, if you use uh, low cost labor and pollute a lot when you make steel, then we're going to slap big tariffs on you. Something like these new investment restrictions that have very high labor standards that would be very difficult for a developing country like China to meet. Um, And at the same time, you have this security architecture forming in East Asia with the United States and its allies. And at the same time, China is kind of building its own empire with some of the things we've talked about before with its expansion through the Belt and Road, its promotion of its own tech champions and its policy of dual circulation, which is basically trying to increase its dependence on its own market, not on especially Western markets. So I I totally agree with you that I think the world is sort of moving into these two blocks that it may not be the Cold War, but it kind of is a Cold War in the sense that it's, it's driven by geopolitical competition between the two most powerful countries in, in the world. And actually, I think this is sort of the norm in international history that the last 40 years are sort of an anomaly. Most of international history are these sort of series of cold wars that occasionally go hot 
among the, the great powers of the system. And this is sort of the latest iteration of that. And so unfortunately, I think it's taking us to a much more splintered world. I mean, even the internet itself is already being sort of cut in half where, you know, you obviously can't access the same things in China that you could in the United States and maybe increasingly vice versa. So I think that's certainly happening. Um, in terms of a Chinese style, like Russian style invasion. Yeah. I mean, I, I really worry about a Chinese assault on Taiwan. And I'm sorry, I forgot to respond to the question earlier about what is Russia's invasion of Ukraine mean? I think, um, you know, some people think it could make a Chinese invasion of Taiwan more likely because if the United States and its allies get bogged down in in Eastern and Central Europe, then maybe they have fewer resources, their attention is distracted, et cetera. I, I think unless somehow the United States, which it doesn't look at all likely to do, gets militarily involved and puts a big part of its military around Europe, that it's unlikely to affect China's timeline for Taiwan. I think China has its own timeline for Taiwan. And I think it's going to happen sometime, you know, between 2025 and 2030, if it is going to happen, that's driven more by um elements in the local military balance in the Taiwan Strait. The fact that the U.S. is about to retire a lot of its major warships and major ballistic uh, uh, guided missile submarines, meaning there's going to be a lot less U.S. firepower in the late 2020s in and around the Taiwan Strait, um, gives China an opportunity. So they're looking at things like that that are going to more determine when they move on Taiwan, less so the Ukraine crisis. Um, and right now, China's sort of, I think, trying to play defense, trying to avoid any kind of blowback on it from Russia's actions now that big parts of the Western world are starting to get increasingly aggressive with, you know, their sanctions on, on Russia. Um, and then in terms of the last question, I, I, if I understand it right, is like, is the Chinese regime paranoid? Um, I, I, I don't like to use the, those kind of words to assign sort of like psychological, like deficiencies to, to a regime. I, I actually think, you know, if I were in Beijing and I was a leader of China, I mean, China is just in a very difficult position, or at least historically, has been. It's just in a rough neighborhood. You're trying to bring a, a, what was a poor country and make it a rich country. I mean, there's just a lot of objectives. And then all those headwinds I talked about. And if you're Xi Jinping, um, you know, I mean, I guess you could call it paranoia, but, you know, to, to really hold on to power into China historically, I mean, there was a great study done at Harvard that showed that literally half of China's rulers, not just in the CCP time, but in, um, if you go back through dynastic ages, Half of them within a few years of, of stepping down were either killed, imprisoned, exiled. Um, and so, you know, in other words, like violent leadership transitions are not unknown in China. And so for Xi Jinping, because he had to purge so many senior CCP officials, has probably made a lot of enemies. And so you can understand why he would, he would feel um, threatened. And I don't think that's paranoia. I think that's just a fact of both Chinese politics today and then looking at the broader world with the rise in anti-China sentiment. China is just starting to confront a, a less welcoming world internationally. I don't really see that as paranoia, just more as China is in a difficult position and is hasn't done itself a lot of favors, frankly, with some of its its actions, but is now taking steps to try to you know accomplish various obstacles um, before it before it's too late. Very valuable indeed, Michael. I think we will spend the whole night answering the questions because you've already answered 20 and we're having 17 in the pool. Uh, I will end up the pool question with this last question if you would allow it. So I have a question from Charlie Wang and Alan Wang as well. And it asks you how much influence do the United States multinationals have on the U.S. economy uh, 
contaminant of China, uh, it seems that many MNCs are reluctant to move away from the China market opportunity and, in fact, double down on the China domestic growth. Uh, why there is uh, so, and then there is a follow up from Anand asking why there is no rising power from India, for example, from your historian point of view here, that would, you know, um, um, that would be equivalent to what we are seeing at the moment with China. And lastly, what would be the positive takeaways that we could take from the Chinese system in this current developing climate, if there are any? Okay, these are so many, so many great questions. Thanks so much for, for raising them. I think first, you're, you're absolutely right that um, there, there's a disjuncture between, say, what Washington, D.C., the, the bureaucrats and the policymakers want to do to compete with China and what Western multinationals are actually doing. A lot of them are still have operations based in China, obviously, and Wall Street in particular has been actually pouring more money into China. And so it shows that, especially in a, a democratic system, it's hard to kind of get all of your ducks um, in order. And I think that is, is just based off the fact that, you know, to use a physics analogy, um, you know, there's, there's a latent energy. And then there's like kinetic energy, actual energy being used. And China, of course, has like the most latent energy of any country because it has this huge population. You have Chinese savers that right now have to keep most of their money in state-owned banks. Um, you know, if you're, if you're working on Wall Street and you think you could, pro you could get into the China market and you could unleash all of that capital and get access to it and make money from all the transactions, um, you know, or you, you uh, are part of the NBA or some major American sports franchise, or you're a Hollywood producer, um, you know, just the, the China's huge population has always had, created this lure of a big China market. And even though the long-term demographics may be very bad, right now, China still has this big, vibrant um, um, middle class that you would want to sell to if you're a multinational. And it's still, even though labor costs have gone up a lot and automation is starting to take over a lot of those activities, in the short term, it's very hard for multinationals to just pick up shop and just move to Vietnam or Malaysia or just automate and reshore all of that. I do, the, I do think those things will happen in the long term. Um, but the reason why you're not seeing this like massive exodus of MN, uh, multinationals right now in the short term is just there's, there's costs to picking up stakes that are going to have to be internalized. And then there's still this, of course, lure of wanting to retain access to China's market. Now, you know, I, I, I think some people in DC have it right that they're looking a little bit further ahead and they're seeing, look, China has this new policy called dual circulation. They don't want multinational, Western multinationals to capture the value from China's economy. They want to capture it for Chinese firms. So you better watch out because it's increasingly unlikely you're going to get the kind of access you want to Chinese capital, to China, to the China market. Um, but these are longer term, medium to long term trends. So we'll have to wait and see. I, I think you will start to see more multinationals moving out or being kicked out, frankly, by the Chinese as they try to replace those companies with just fully homegrown owned uh, Chinese uh, companies. Um, on India, um, I think the question, I mean, I, I don't see India as coming anywhere close to China. It's nowhere close to being as powerful as China or as wealthy. And, and, and it's also suffering from a lot of the same headwinds that China is now. And the Modi government seems to be moving in a much more authoritarian direction as well, which doesn't bode well. So I, I agree that India is probably not likely to rival China as a superpower. That said, it, it's playing an increasingly active role in this sort of this sort of mini containment barrier that's being set up. So India, of course, is massing forces on its border 
its land border with China at the same time that it's increasingly sending its navy into and around the South China Sea. And obviously with the Quad, which the United States is basically trying to turn into an alliance within Asia for maritime security and, and, and other things like, you know, providing COVID vaccines, et cetera, to win hearts and minds from China. That, I mean, India is a player, you know, India is a major player, um, even if it's not a superpower. But I, I agree with you that it's not going to rival China um, in aggregate power. And then in terms of positive lessons you can learn from China, I mean, I think the government, you know, there's been many, many opinion columns in the United States written, like we need to be a bit more Chinese in various ways. In other words, we've realized that an open, just free market system where anything goes doesn't necessarily need, lead to investments in critical areas for long-term national economic growth or national power. So in, infrastructure will decline and erode education, especially at the primary and secondary level, will atrophy outside of sort of rich areas. Um, and, and technology won't necessarily get funded, at least cutting edge technologies. People will spend more time trying to make apps for phones rather than what Xi Jinping calls the hard technologies, you know, like semiconductors, et cetera. And so I think there's now this big push and you're seeing a lot of legislation on Capitol Hill and the Biden Biden's team about, you know, building back better is basically taking sort of a page from China's book in the sense that the state, the government is playing a bigger role in bankrolling big infrastructure projects in, in technology. Um, and frankly, and also using trade and investment barriers to shield American workers or protect American intellectual property um, in ways that maybe when the Washington consensus, you know, in this free market, you know, system dominated in the 1990s and 2000s, you wouldn't, you wouldn't see. So I think the United States is already kind of taking certain elements from a more state, a more mercantilist approach rather than a more liberal approach. But I still think there are, there are huge, there's a gulf of difference between what China is doing and what, what the United States is doing today. Thank you, Michael, for your very valuable insight on the conflicts um, uh, landscape between China and the USA and for this great valuable lessons that we've learned today about making sure that it's not just the economic campus we have to look at, but every other aspect of the game. Um, any last words or thoughts before we conclude here? No, thank you so much for, for tuning in and thanks for having me. Thank you so much. And our uh, final uh, thanks to the Institute for hosting all of us, our, our audience as well. Stay tuned for our next conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Bye. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.